Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to be here with Professor Jeffrey Weidlinger, who is a professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan and director of the Frankel Center for Jewish Studies. Thank you for taking time to talk. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm very interested in your um, one of your recent projects, the Oral History and Linguistic Project among Yiddish speakers in Eastern Europe. And just to start at, at, at the beginning, um, why did the Soviets conduct anti-religious campaigns in the first place? Um, yeah, so the Soviets conducted anti-religious campaigns because the basis of it is that communism was a new religion, and communism was going to be a new religion, a new messianism even. Uh, as you probably know, Marx thought that religion is the opiate of the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Soviets embarked upon a campaign throughout the Soviet Union to, uh, to destroy religious practices, not only among Jews, but also among Christians and among Muslims. Uh, they would do all types of you know, grand schemes to convince people that religion didn't exist. There were stories of uh, Soviets taking people up in airplanes, uh, taking particularly priests they would take up into an airplane to show them that there's no God in the sky. Yeah. You know, they would do this to show, and they would do little experiments where they would have a priest bless a piece of land, and then they would have somebody else fertilize the piece of land mm-hmm. and see which one grows quicker. Uh-huh. Uh, so they had all types of anti-religious campaigns. They embarked upon anti-religious campaigns among the Jews yeah. uh, by uh, instituting you know, what are called Red Haggadahs, so it's books that told the story of Passover, but told as a story of liberation um, rather than as a story, you know, as a story of liberation of the proletariat rather than a story of liberation of the Jews. So all types of campaigns. But what was the threat? I don't understand that they thought that there would be a messianic uprising. I mean, what, what, what was the what, what do they view as the power of religion there? I think religion poses uh, alternative loyalty. As opposed to the party. Oh, okay. If you want people okay. just to be loyal to the party, just to be loyal to the ideology of communism, uh, then you have to be done with religion. And communism itself is a religion. Mm-hmm. It had to be because it was believing in something that doesn't exist. It was believing in the possibility of something coming about that doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. And uh, really, the only way communism worked in the Soviet Union was by forcing people to put their faith in the system. Mm-hmm. So who did you interview over there, and, and, and why did you choose that population? Right, so we went, uh, we started going um, in 2002, and I went with my colleague Dov Bear Curler, who is a Yiddish linguist, and the whole project started on the heels of another project to interview Yiddish speakers in uh, Lithuania and Belarus. It was organized by Dovid Katz, who is a Yiddish linguist. Mm-hmm. And so these two Yiddish linguists, Dov Bear Curler and Dovid Katz, were traveling throughout the former Shtetlach of Eastern Europe, interviewing Yiddish speakers in order to look for changes in the language. And they were looking primarily for people who are still living in the town in which they're born, 
because they wanted to see how language changes, how the vowels shift from one town to the other. And the way you do that is by interviewing people. Mm -hmm. It's a whole project that had actually originated many years ago with uh, the Weinrechts were doing it, and there's an atlas of Yiddish language that was run out of Columbia University in order to try to trace the isoglosses of the language and to see where the, where the shifts take place. And so I kind of joined on that as a lark. Mm. And part of the what they were doing, part of the interview process, was a large questionnaire in which they said words in Russian and asked the informant to translate it into Yiddish. Um, and then there was also a portion of it that was free speech, in which they would just ask the, the people, person they were interviewing to talk about their life. And I started listening to these stories, and I was really struck by the life stories of these people and what they had lived through. And the segment on the free speech asks, uh, you know, tell me about your life before the war, tell me about your life during the war, and tell me about your life after the war. Mm. And just the impact that the war had on these people's lives was really shocking. Yeah. And to recognize the oldest people we interviewed were born, um, you know, they were born in the 1910s. And that meant in their early childhood was the Russian Revolution and the pogroms of the Russian Revolution, which about 100,000 Jews were killed during these pogroms. These are some of their very first memories. Um, in fact, we interviewed one person who was born in 1917, and he showed us he had a scar across his arm. And the scar was where a bullet that killed his mother uh, ricocheted off of his arm during the pogroms. And he was left as a baby. He was left for dead in a mass grave. And then a priest discovered him afterwards and brought him up. Uh, so the earliest, the oldest people we interviewed were born in that climate. And then they lived through the revolution. Um, as young people, they lived through the revolution and civil war. Um, and then they lived through the 1920s. They lived through the communists coming and confiscating all of their goods. Uh, they lived in, in their houses and they lived through mass arrests. And they lived through seeing the rabbis be arrested and the, and the priests arrested. Um, they lived through the great purges. Then they lived through World War II and the impact of the war and the Holocaust, and many of them, you know, they had to survive the Holocaust somehow, uh, either in hiding uh, or in a ghetto, or they evacuated to the east and settled in uh, Uzbekistan for a while and came back, or Turkmenistan, wherever they went, uh, and came back. And then, right after the war, they have this period of stagnation, uh, where they're living through an era of, of stagnation, and then the whole country that they lived through all of this falls, and collapses, and they find themselves in a new state struggling to live as pensioners, uh, with their family members, their children having left, settled in Brooklyn or settled in Israel, um, and they're left alone there. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that we're interviewing, just really remarkable life stories. Wow. So I became interested in the life stories, yeah. um, as opposed to the linguistic elements. Mm -hmm. um, they, they were also the, the, the yeah. linguists were also interested in the life stories. How, how, did, how did Holocaust education influence the way that we um, think about or teach the massacres prior to the Holocaust, what you've called the Holocaust before the Holocaust? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So first, you know, one thing that struck me, the, way, the project that I'm doing right now is on the pogroms of the Russian Civil War. Yeah. And I became interested in that by listening to these people describe the Holocaust. And the way they describe it, they call the massacres of the Holocaust pogroms, mm. uh, which is not a word that we would typically use to describe those massacres. But for them, the use of that word pogrom made me realize that they incorporated into a yeah. history of pogroms that right. we don't. Right. We regard the Holocaust as something very distinct right. from everything that happened before. And in fact, there's good reason for that, because we're thinking when we talk about the Holocaust, we're thinking of death camps, we're thinking of Auschwitz. 
Um, we're thinking of transporting Jews across Europe to die and to be asphyxiated by gas yeah. in death camps. Whereas for them, what they're picturing is armies coming into town, rounding up Jews and killing them. Yeah. And that had happened before. The death camps hadn't happened before. But what they experienced, their Holocaust, had happened before. Mm. And this is the, you know, what we call now the, the Holocaust by bullets. Mm. It is the terminology that's often used for the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, which is a very different Holocaust experience than the one that we associate uh, most saliently with, like Elie Wiesel, for instance, or Anne Frank, uh, the most prominent victims of the Holocaust, or survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, but for them, it's very different. For them, it seemed like a pogrom. Yeah. So what were some of the strategies that Jews used to, to um, resist the Soviets in order to practice Jewish ritual at times? Yeah, so that's something that I became interested in yeah. as well. So there were anti-religious campaigns. And just to be very clear, the anti-religious campaigns worked yeah. for the most part, yeah. uh, particularly yeah. among young people. Right. Um, young people did not learn religion. Uh, they were afraid to go to synagogue. They didn't go to synagogue. And disinterested. And disinterested, yeah, right. And they drifted away from religious life. Um, but elderly people still often held on to religious rituals in, in ways that I don't think we'd ever realized before. Um, there were still people who could slaughter meat. There were still shoichets, kosher slaughterers, who were functioning in the shtetlach. Um, there were still some synagogues, actually more synagogues than we realized, still continued to function. Uh, throughout the up until the war. After the war, most of them closed down, although even after the war, there's a few that continue to function. Um, but there was still more religious life than we really anticipated. And a lot of the time, small groups of elderly people, uh, they were banned from the synagogue. Uh, communists you know, would come and they would put locks on the synagogue. Um, but then they could still have a private minion and a private home. And many of them did, and they talk about that, and they talk about having little minions in their homes. Uh, many of them continued to still make pilgrimages to the graves of uh, Hasidic rabbis and, mm -hmm. and, and tzaddiks who were buried in the cemeteries. Uh, they continued to make pilgrimages there. Uh, a lot of the people that we interviewed talked about their parents making pilgrimages, and they themselves do. Um, in fact, we went with somebody to make a pilgrimage, uh, and uh, she puts her medicine on the grave and walks around the grave and says that that's how you strengthen the medicine. Mm. Um, so people continue to have these, what we would call superstitions, mm. to go to the grave sites of, uh, um, of people yeah. they regard as holy uh, in order to try to derive benefit from them. Uh, so there's still ways that people practice religion. Um, observing the Passover Seder uh, was a mainstay of religious mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. um, and people made huge efforts to do that. Uh, they, there's secret service reports. There's reports of the uh, Committee for Religious Cults, it was called. Yeah. Um, that's a Soviet committee that investigated what religions were doing. And they talked about uh, before, the, before Passover came, um, people baking matzah and secretly baking matzah, um, about Jews painting the synagogue in order to beautify it for the mm -hmm. Passover mm -hmm. holiday. Uh, so Passover was a big deal. Um, and then the high holidays were also a big deal. There's still reports of people going to synagogues. Um, yeah. And in fact, hundreds of people showing up at synagogues. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that's, that's fascinating. And that's on the front of, of, of ritual and observance. I wonder in your interviews, did you notice a distinction between those who held a faith yeah. um, of some type without ritual versus ritual observance? Yeah, so a lot of the time the ritual observance is separated from the faith. They don't know why they're doing it, but oh, they continue to do it. Okay. And when you ask them why they're doing it, they would say, because my parents did it, oh, and this is how okay. I learned to do things as a child. Um, but also, on the other hand, you have some people who talk about faith, 
and don't necessarily know the religious rituals, but still believe that there is something of faith within them. They still mm -hmm. talk about the need to believe in God. Um, it's a faith that they have learned, I think that they've inherited a lot from surrounding Christian faith, that all that matters is faith mm -hmm. and the ritual doesn't matter, um, is an ideology that we hear a lot. And uh, we're told, you know, several people that we interviewed told us that you just have to have faith and that everything will come and that they, a Jew must have oh, faith. Mm. Uh, and when we ask why or when we ask why you do things, they say because that's the way it's done. Mm. Because one ought to do it that way. Mm. So um, it's funny I, it, that you describe it as generational because as, uh, as someone who grew up with on Sharansky's stories, you think of a young man like him mm -hmm. who's kind of resisting um, even on a ritual level. Yeah. Um, and, and yet you said it's mostly those of an older generation who were engaged with that. So he's kind of an anomaly. Yeah. 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 So, um, how, how does the reality of Russian Jews today, um, look so different than what those who were around the world advocating for, you know, Soviet, the, in the Soviet Jewry movement, how does that reality, um, kind of clash with what, with, with what the expectation was? Yeah, so I think this has been difficult for a lot of Russian Jewish emigres in the last 20 years, 20, who have come since the fall of communism, which is that there was an image of Russian Jews that Americans, predominantly Americans, had yeah. made up of Jews just like themselves, right. struggling to get out. Right. And when the Soviet Union actually opened up, we realized that 75 years of communism had brought about many changes within the Jews of Russia, and 75 years of Americanization had brought about many changes in us. Yeah. And we actually weren't the same people. So even though our you know, grandparents or great-grandparents may have come from the same village as their great-grandparents or their grandparents, uh, there was still a chasm between us mm -hmm. um, in a wide variety of ways. They, um, many of them, uh, didn't have a traditional Jewish education, but we would consider a traditional Jewish education, but still considered themselves Jewish. They still regarded themselves as Jewish. They thought of Jewishness as an ethnicity more than a religion. Um, they thought of it as, even as what they would call a nationality. Whereas for Americans, they don't think of Judaism as a nationality mm -hmm. whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, Jews tend to think of it as a, in terms of religion. Mm -hmm. And that's a change that took place both in America, mm -hmm. and there's a story we could talk about about 75 years in which Judaism became a religion mm -hmm. in America as opposed to a race, say, mm -hmm. or an ethnicity, mm -hmm. uh, which it commonly was called 75 years ago. Um, and by contrast, a process in the United in uh, the Soviet Union in which Judaism became more of a nationality, what they would call a nationality. So the image, you know, was very different of each other, and the reality was very different. Um, the Jews were not; uh, they it wasn't like a, you know a Rip Van Winkle, where they're asleep for a hundred years and then they come out and they're the exact same as they were when they went to sleep. In fact, they had changed and we had changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a way, you know, Elie Wiesel's Jews of Silence, which is a very important book on the Soviet Jewry movement, yeah. uh, although this wasn't Elie Wiesel's point, but it projected an image yeah. of them as being entrapped and just kind of waiting to come out. And when they come out, they're going to uh, be the same as they uh, were. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, the Jews of Silence that Elie Wiesel writes about were not the Soviet Jews. Mm -hmm. The Jews of Silence are the American Jews. Mm -hmm. Because he says they're not rising up. They're not yelling out and screaming to save the yeah. Soviet Jews. Oh, wow. um, but in any case, there's uh, 
Uh, I think there's that Rip yeah, Van Winkle so thing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, with the Soviet Jewry movement in America being the most animated Jewish activist movement of the 20th century, and then today where hundreds of thousands of Russian Jews are marginalized and alienated within Israel, almost um, ubiquitous, pervasive apathy about yeah. such a such, such situation. So I think my last question for you is, um, why are Russian Jews so far right-wing politically? Yeah. Um, whether we're talking about a Victor uh, Lieberman in Israel or, or folks in America, um, I think it's probably uh, statistically true, but in, just on my own experience, I have never met a Russian Jew who wasn't far right politically. And I wonder where that, where that comes from, if that's, if that's accurate. And, and where that comes from. Yeah, I mean, I believe yeah. statistically it's yeah. accurate. Yeah. I mean, when you think that American Jews are, I think, voted for, uh, uh, I think the last figure I know is voted for Obama at 78% or something. Uh, in the, So American Jews are predominantly liberal. And I think it's true that Russian Jews uh, have become more right-wing. And much of that is just the experience of living under communism and their distaste for the left. Uh, regardless of the fact that there's no, uh, you know, no party in the in the United States or in Israel, for that matter, mm -hmm. is communist in that way. But there's just this distaste for the left that's come about uh, as a result of. Living what what do you mean by the left in this regard? Large government? Um, yeah, I think they're afraid of large governments mm -hmm. um, because of their experiences mm -hmm. uh, having lived under a very large government, mm -hmm. um, and they have a distrust of central authority. Uh, whereas I think many American and Israeli Jews, for that matter, mm -hmm. still fundamentally trust the government mm -hmm. um, to do the right thing. Right. Uh, even, you know, when the current government isn't doing the right thing, right. they still tend to have a trust in the yeah. ability of government to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the experience of living in the Soviet Union shattered that fundamental yeah. trust. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Be, friends, be sure to check out uh, Professor Jeffrey Weilinger's uh, articles and books and, and talks. Thank you so much.